Well, good morning. Well, today we're going to continue with this series of messages that we started a couple of weeks ago that we're calling The Kingdom, and uh, in which we're looking together at the kingdom parables of Jesus, these parables in which Jesus says, hey, this is the kingdom. And we've talked a little bit about just kind of conceptually what the kingdom is, and we've said that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is kind of Jesus' favorite way of saying to the world, look, this is what I'm up to. This is my mission. This is my vision. But what's that? The vision of Jesus is the rolling back of the curse of sin and death in this world. It's a rolling back toward paradise, toward the garden. The vision of Jesus is the filling of this world with a people who live their lives as an anthem of praise, not to sex, not to money, not to themselves, not to any of the gods of this world, but who live their lives as an anthem of praise to the living God. The vision of Jesus is the reclaiming of everything in the created order for the praise and for the glory of God. It's the total transformation of this planet from one that is sin-stained, from one that is sorrow-filled, from one that is, frankly, pretty dirty and very broken, to one that is perfect and joy-filled and pure and unbroken, to a place where ultimately the will of God is done here on earth, even as it's done in heaven. That's the kingdom. But how does the kingdom work? Because we've talked a little bit about that too, and we said, you know, hey, first of all, the kingdom doesn't work unless it first finds good soil in our hearts. That vision, that mission, that message, that picture, that kingdom vision, if you will, must first send its roots deeply down into the soils of our hearts. It must claim us to the uttermost. And then it produces in and through us a harvest of transformation. It transforms us, but then it begins to have a transformative effect in each one of our little individual worlds. These people with whom we work and live and play, our offices, our schools, our classrooms, our friends, should be different because of us. And then collectively, as we come together, our world as a church, this city should be, you know what, being transformed, different because of us. And then the world beyond our borders, and again, at the end of the service, we'll talk about Haiti, but it should be different because of us. It transforms us, and then it transforms others. It transforms the world as we go out proclaiming, first of all, the message of the kingdom, a forgiveness of sins and salvation, eternal life that is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and, and as we do battle against the effects of sin in this world, as we minister to the sick and to the hurting, as we feed and clothe and help the hungry and the homeless, as we assist single moms and troubled teens, and as we care for widows and orphans, heaven then comes to earth bit by bit through you and me. But it doesn't work unless it first finds good soil in our hearts. But then secondly, as we started talking about last week, the kingdom doesn't work unless or until we first understand and agree with God on something, which is what? It is that people matter to God and they need to matter to us. And by that, and we talked all about this last week, we don't just mean people that look like us and walk like us and talk like us and vote like us and smell like us and think like us. and Not just people who look like us and are like us, if you will, but every kind of person. We used to sing it as a kid, remember, red and yellow, black and white, it's, it's, that's it. They're precious in His sight. Every nation, every language, every tribe, every color, every creed, every religion. 
Every class of individual, young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. And you know what the reality is so far? Most of us don't have any problem with any of those things. We're like, yeah, 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 get to the message. It's okay, I'm cool with all, I don't have any problem with any of those people. I'm great with all of those classifications. But I'm not done yet because there's one last classification. And this is the one that Jesus is targeting. People matter to God and they need to matter to us. Even those people who we look at in our lives or we look at in this world and we say, those people are bad people. And yet they matter too. And one of the inescapable lessons of the Bible is that it's the religiously observant people, it's the moral people, it's the so-called good people, it's the ones that we would go, hey, good people, it's the ones who, well, look a little like us, quite frankly, who oftentimes struggle the most with that. I mean, it's like we're cool with people matter to God and they need to matter to us, but those people? Yeah, them too. And that's what Jesus takes issue with. It's what he zeroes in on and targets, not just with one parable, not just with two parables, but with three, all in Luke chapter 15. And last week, we looked at the first two. We'll briefly rehearse them. But today, we're going to look at a parable that's become known throughout the ages as the parable of the prodigal or of the lost son. But I want you to hear, understand, going into this deal, there are two sons in this parable. Two, and they're both lost. They're both lost. Luke says this in Luke 15, verse 1. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners, the so-called bad people in that culture, were all drawing near to Jesus. And, you know, we talked a little bit about that last week, but it bears repeating. I mean, I think we ought to ask ourselves, well, why doesn't that happen to me? And why doesn't that happen to you, perhaps? And why isn't that happening more so here? And why isn't that happening more so around the world? It seems to me that we attract people that are like us, not that are tax collectors and sinners, but yet if we're proclaiming the message of Jesus and if we're literally living out the ethic and the life of the kingdom, as did Jesus, ought we not attract the same people as did Jesus? It bears reflection. Luke says, now the tax collectors and the sinners, the so-called bad people, don't lose that, were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the so-called good people, the moral people, the religiously observant people, had a problem with that. They grumbled, saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. He takes all comers. He gives them the kind of reception that only we who live really good lives, quite frankly, deserve. Hang on to that. Because in reply, Jesus says this. Luke says, Jesus told them this parable. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until when? We talked about it, until you get tired, until you get lost yourself. I mean, until you get frustrated, until the dinner bell rings, until you throw your hands up in the air and go, that's it, sheep. This time you've wandered too far. No. Until he finds it, and when he has found it, he gives it a GPS system. No. Hands it a map? No. He says, look, if you go over the hill, there's going to be this big oak tree. When you get to the oak tree, take a left, go through Farmer Brown's field. There's a big stone, and then you've got to take a right in about three miles, and then you'll find this man, and he has no teeth. You ask him where to go, and he... No! He gets down on the ground, 
because the sheep is just sitting in its sin. It's lost. They just sit down. They're not going anywhere when they get lost. They give up. And somehow he gets his head underneath this sheep who's been rolling around in what? Who's been sitting in what? How many brambles? How many briars? How much manure? How many bugs? I mean, I'm a little bit of a gerbophobe. I'll be honest, I'd shoot him down with, you know, Purell before I... And then he puts him on his shoulders, right? And he carries it home, grumbling the whole way, lecturing the sheep. I can't believe you did this again. I can't believe, you know, you are such a bad sheep. And, oh, good grief, I'm going to have to take three showers to get the stink off of me. And look at how inconvenient this is. And you put everybody out and I had to leave the 99. None of that. He goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Wow. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And they do rejoice. Why do they rejoice? Because they understand and agree that that lost sheep matters. Just like all the other sheep safely already in the fold, that lost one, oh man. Valuable. And then Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the man who comes from heaven, right, peels back the veil of heaven and speaks authoritatively to it as the only one who's been there and come to earth. And he says to the moral people, to the good people, to the religiously observant people, that's who he tells the stories to, guys. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And all the tax collectors and the sinners are like, woo, you know, and but he's not looking at them. He looks at the Pharisees and the scribes, you see, I mean, can't you imagine this as if to say, OK, did the story drive home the point? I mean, did you get the point? You got it right. You get you did. not Oh, you didn't get it. OK, so then he tells another story. It's like, all right. We'll just keep going then until we get it. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until, you know, the phone rings or Oprah comes on or she gets distracted and she just, you know, I mean, she gets tired of doing this and says, Good grief, it's just a stinking coin. What's the big deal? What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. And they do. Why? Well, because they all understand and agree that just like the other nine coins that were safely already within her possession, that one lost coin, oh man, that coin is precious. And by the way, it matters. It's valuable no matter where it's rolled off to and no matter what it's rolled off through. So again, you know, Jesus peels back the veil of heaven and he says, okay, you missed it the first time. Let me say it again. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he looks into their eyes and he looks into mine and he looks into yours as if to say, okay, did you get it that time? Or do I have to tell another story? So he tells another story and it's the climactic story. Even numerically, you see it all going this direction. Hundred sheep, one lost. 10 coins, one lost. Two sons, kind of sounds like there's only one lost. Actually, there are two. And the question of the parable for every one of us is, which one of these sons am I? 
So Jesus continues. He said, there was a man who had, here it is, two sons. So he's telling you up front, first phrase, two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, you know what he's asking for because you've heard this story. He's asking for his inheritance, but an inheritance is something we don't get until after our father dies, generally speaking. But he's not waiting for the father to die. You get the point? I mean, there's a sense in which he's coming to his dad and he's just saying, I'm just going to tell you the truth. You know what the truth is? The truth is, Dad, I'm not interested in serving you. I'm not interested in living with you. I'm not interested in relationship with you. I'm Honestly, I'm not interested in you at all. And the fact that you're alive is frankly an inconvenience for me because this is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in what you have, in what you can do, in what you can give to me. Really and truly, that's it. Give me my share of the inheritance because, Pop, I'm too impatient to wait for you to die. Now, that's offensive to us, but if you heard that in the first century Jewish culture that Jesus is speaking to, like, you know, you would be getting red in the face. Jesus begins with this younger son right here to paint a picture of a guy that is so bad. I mean, when he's done with the picture, this guy's so bad, he makes the tax collectors and the sinners look like Boy Scouts. It's like there's almost nothing left for this kid to do wrong before he comes home. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, two. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the inheritance, the word of, or the, or of the property, he says, that is coming to me. The word property there means literally life. Jesus is saying in this story that life is the possession of the father. Father, give me the share of the life that is coming to me so that I can go waste it. And instead of disinheriting him, he gives it to him. Jesus said, and the father divided his life, his property between them. And then not many days later, why? Because this kid had already packed his bags. He had already made all of his reservations. Not many days later, the son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country, a place that his heart had clearly been residing for some time before his body followed. And just kind of as an aside, you know, that's the way that it works with sin. Our hearts tend to travel to the far country long before the rest of us go. But oftentimes the rest of us go. That's a real statement to us. Be careful where you go in your heart. Guard your heart that you might steer clear of the far country. Jesus says not many days later, because his heart's already checked into the hotel, the son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into the far country looking for what? Looking for what he will discover here in a second can only be found in the embrace of his father, where he squandered his life, where he squandered his property. In reckless living. So he gets to the far country man and the party is on. Now, what's the problem with a party? The problem with a party is that the party always has to end at some point and it inevitably leaves a big mess. And that's exactly what happens for this guy. 
He squanders his life, his property, and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, the party ended, and a severe famine arose in that country. Uh Uh-oh. And he began to be in need. Why? Because all the friends that he thought were really his during the party days are nowhere to be found. You know, they're not texting him back. They're not returning his calls. So he went and did something that no young Jewish man would do. This is part of painting the picture of a really, really bad person before these Jewish people Jesus talking to. He went and hired himself out to one of the Gentile, I've added that, citizens of that country. That's a legitimate addition because no Jew would have pigs. And this guy has pigs. You would not, as a Jew, hire yourself out to a Gentile, any Gentile. Secondly, a Gentile has pigs. Thirdly, a Gentile who has pigs who's now going to send you out to go work with the pigs because that's what happens. It says, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need so that he went and hired himself out. You can feel the desperation of his need to one of the Gentile citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And then just when you think it can't get any worse, Jesus really adds the exclamation point at the end of the sentence, and he says, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The kid is starving, and he's longing after pig food and he can't even get any of that. And he's thinking to himself, you know, when I looked at the brochures for the far country, I mean, I did not see this anywhere. I I went on their website. It was amazing. I took the virtual tour. (laughs) Nothing about pigs, destitution, filth, deprivation. Listen to all the video testimonials, those liars, those big fat liars, those. And that's true about sin as well. You know, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It always looks so much better than it ends up being. It promises us freedom, and what it gives to us instead is slavery. It promises us life, and what it gives to us instead is death. And as we succumb to its temptations and we wake up the next morning after the party, And we start coming to terms with the mess that is me, or maybe that is you. And we start remembering, or maybe people are telling us, or worse, they're showing us videos, you know, like on their Facebook page. Thank God that was not around when I was in college. I'm not kidding. Wow. It doesn't leave us saddled with joy. It leaves us saddled with shame with regret. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything, but then he had a great awakening. He came to life. It says, but when he came to himself, when he finally woke up and saw himself and his life, and his father, by the way, accurately, He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He's realized, my father, the only source of life. I will arise and go home. No, he doesn't say that, does he? I will arise and go to my father. The father is the destination. Always. 
I will arise and go home to my father and I, and I will say to him, and then he writes his speech, you know, wouldn't you write your speech? I'm like envisioning three by five cards by the time he finally made it home. I mean, he's got it condensed and down and he's got it, you know, and it's like he's practiced it. Oh, father, I've sinned against heaven and against, you know, running through it in his head because this is going to be interesting. So he writes his speech. I will say, I got it all figured out. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then he arose and came to his father. And what happens in the story? Now what happens is the camera angle shifts and it shifts quite dramatically to the father. And where is the father? Well, if you understand the homes of those days, culturally, I think the clear implication is that dad's up on the roof of the house and he's not fixing the shingles, man. The roofs of the homes in those days were often used it's like patios. They had staircases up the side of the house. You walk up the side of the house and you go up onto the roof. You see that, for example, in the story of the paralytic. The four guys come and grab the four corners of his mat, you remember, and they race to the house where Jesus is teaching and the house is so full of people that they can't get in. So what do they do? They walk up the staircase on the side of the house, they go up onto the patio and they destroy this guy's patio by digging through the roof and then lowering the paralytic in front of Jesus. It's the same picture. The father is up on the roof, but he's not up there just enjoying the cool of the day and the breeze and, you know, smoking his pipe and hanging out and, you know, reading the Torah or something. The father is up on the roof looking long down the road to the far country looking for his boy day after day week after week year after year so he's on the roof and he's looking down the street and um, and he sees a little speck I mean can you imagine this on the horizon maybe coming up over the hill or something Now, here's the deal. He's seen a thousand specks. It's the road to the far country. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many are they that travel it. And I've traveled it. I can tell you all the hotels and stops and bars along the way. So he's seen a lot of specks, okay? But this one's a little unique, you know? I mean, this one's a little bit different, and it comes a little closer, and he looks a little more keenly at it, and he's thinking, you know, maybe it's the slope of the shoulders. Maybe it's the way he holds his head. Maybe it's the way he swings his arm. Maybe it's the way he, you know, moves his feet. But there's something distinctive about this one. And it gets a little closer and a little clearer and a little closer and a little clearer, and Dad's, like, really, like, toning into, zooming into this particular speck on the horizon and he's realizing his heart is starting to race because all of a sudden he's saying, wait a minute, it's him. It's my boy. Jesus says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And immediately all of those feelings of of anger and bitterness and resentment, and I can't believe this kid did it, and he shamed our whole family, and he's, Dad, I wish you were dead, I'm not interested in you, I just want your stuff, and I know what he's done off in that foreign country, and came racing back to his heart, right? No. That's the heart of the Pharisee. That's the heart of the scribe. That's the heart that Jesus is taking issue with. That is not the heart of the Father. And that is so comforting. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and did something. And we've talked about this, but it's something that no self-respecting man in that culture would do. He reached down and he grabbed his long flowing robes, you know, which 
would have been down around his feet, and he pulled them up, thus bearing his legs, and he tied them off probably about mid-thigh. Men in that culture did not and still don't bear their legs. Neither did they or do they run. But he pulls up his robes, man, and he ties those dudes off at mid-thigh to free his legs so that he can run. And dad comes ripping off the roof. He comes flying down the staircase. He darn near takes the railing off the staircase. Dad comes tooling around the corner of the house. He clears the white picket fence by two feet like an Olympic hurdler. And he comes running down the street toward his boy, heart pounding, lungs burning, legs flying, tears flowing. Meanwhile, boy's going, ah, you know, he's getting out his three by five cards. He's shouting his speech from a distance. Dad, I've sinned against heaven and you just before you get here. I want you to know that. I don't deserve to be called your son. I... I mean, is he coming to kill her or is he coming to kiss him? What does he deserve? What do you deserve? Anyway. Jesus says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I see, I kind of envision that as like a full-on 50-mile-an-hour collision with a bear hug that ends with a lot of dust flying as they're rolling around in the street. And immediately, the son starts with his speech, you know, I mean, because he's got it down. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against... No, 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 really, I, no, I practiced this. Let me, let me say it. I've sinned against heaven and against earth, and I mean, before you, and, and, and my son, it's, no, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Great, great, great. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe. No, don't just get one of them. Get the best one of them. And put it on him. Practically speaking, what does that do? It covers over all vestiges of his life in the far country, doesn't it? It clothes his guilt and shame. And that which is best, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put the ring, which is the emblem of sonship, on his hand and shoes for to go shoeless in that culture was a sign of poverty. Oh, his life had led to great poverty. We covered that already. But in the father's house, he is rich. So put shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Call the neighbors. Call you know everybody. Get the band in here because we are going to show him what a real party looks like. And let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this son of mine was sick. No, no, no. He was dead, and now is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. But it's not just a parable about one son. It's a parable about two. Quite honestly, the second son is the point of the story, primarily. So Jesus continues. He says, now his older son was in the field. and he, I mean, he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's doing what he always does. He's working hard. He's getting it done for dad. The obedient son, right? Maybe. The older son was in the field, and after he's put in the whole long day, see, as he's coming in, and he draws near to the house, he hears the music. 
and the dancing. And he's like, you know, I must have missed the memo. What's going on? So he calls one of the servants over and and he asks what this thing's meant. And and the servant said to him, no doubt excitedly, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf. And because he has received him back safe and sound. And the older brother says, praise Jesus. This is amazing. This is what I've been praying for. It's not been right since he left. Every night we have dinner and there's his empty seat. It's like a reminder of how incomplete we are as a family. Every holiday he's missing and we're all bummed out. It's like terrible. I sent him letter after letter. I went there and tried to find him even. Nothing. But now you tell me he's back. This is phenomenal. And he races in and he hugs his brother and receives him joyfully and high fives the dad. And, you know, and it's like the party. No, it's none of that stuff. He's furious. And he's furious at his father for receiving this really bad son. This son doesn't deserve that. See, the problem is the older brother thinks he does. It says, but he was angry and refused to go in. And don't miss this. His father came out. So he came to him too. For both sons, he comes out of the house. His father came out and entreated him. He he pleaded with him to come and to eat from the life that is only found, quite frankly, at his table. But he answered his father, look at these many years, he says, I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Look at my good life, he's saying. And yet you never gave me so much as a young goat, much less the fattened calf for crying out loud, that I might celebrate with my friends. You know, it's like a little party. I haven't even gotten that. What is he saying? Because he's completely unmasked. His heart is revealed. And what it reveals is that he's not really interested in serving his dad either. He's not interested in relationship with his dad. He's not interested in living with his dad. He's not interested in his dad at all. There's no joy in his service. There's no love in his service. He doesn't serve dad all of these years and faithfully out of sheer delight in in dad. What it reveals is that what he's really interested in is, is what his father has in what his father can do or can give to him. He's no different from his younger brother. He just has a different strategy for getting what he wants. Instead of just openly offending him and asking for it, this very dutiful son kind of slaves away and 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 slaves away away thinking, finally, at some point, dad owes me. And you see it here. Because he gets furious when he sees younger brother who has done nothing good get what he thinks that only he deserves. He was angry, Jesus said, and refused to go in the house. And his father came out to him too and entreated him to come and to eat from his table. The offer's there, and the food is not purchased. It's freely given. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your commands. You know that. I mean, take a look at my life. It's crazy good. It's amazing. It's ridiculous. Yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, do you hear what he just did? He just disinherited his brother. He just pointed at him and said, you see that kid? 
tax collector? Sinner. Do not associate him with me. Don't put me on the same level as him. And don't try to tell me that, you know, I don't deserve better. When this son of yours, little reminder dad, came who has devoured, little rehearsal, your property, this life you gave him with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. You gave him what I deserve. How dare you? And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, your brother, and don't miss it because that's who he is, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. End of sentence, end of paragraph, and end of story. Leaves you hanging, doesn't it? It's like, but uh, what about the older brother? You know, I mean, did he go in? Did he get the message? Did he understand the story? I can't speak for him, but I hope that you do. The father in the parable is God, clearly. The prodigal in the parable, well, that's the tax collectors and the sinners in Jesus' audience. But it's also every one of us who has ever run away from God by breaking all his commandments. Ever been there? Maybe that's where you are. Wasting your life that the father has given you. What about the older brother? Well, that's clearly the Pharisees and the scribes, but it's also any one of us who are living really good, religiously observant, moral lives, thinking that somehow, as a result of that, God owes us. You know, it's why we get disillusioned when things go bad. It's like our business is failing and we're going, we're upset with God because clearly we deserve better. Don't you see the life I'm living, Lord, and I can't believe you're dragging me through this. And even think perhaps that we deserve heaven as we judge ourselves off against the younger brothers of this world. It's kind of like, well, of course I should be there. I mean, I belong. Really? And the question of the parable is, which one are you? Are you the prodigal who, quite frankly, just needs to come home to the father who's pictured up on the roof looking for your image coming up over the horizon who's created a way for you to be made clean through Christ who takes away your sins a and then gives you and covers you with the robe of his perfect life who takes you in through faith in Jesus not as a slave or as a servant that's not who we are as the people of God. We're children of God. We're sons and daughters who himself, the Bible says, became poor that we might, through faith in him, be made rich. If that's you this morning. Just come home. Come to Christ. Come to the Father. Or are you the older brother who, I mean, bottom line, if you really were going to kind of be honest, you're sort of counting on having been a good person. But you're completely oblivious to the fact 
that the standard of goodness that actually matters is not mine, it's not yours, it's not our culture's, it's not this city, it's not this country's, it's not this world's. It is an otherworldly standard. The standard of goodness that matters is the standard of God Himself, and the standard of God, when it comes to goodness, is His own perfections. That's sobering. Because by that standard, we all fail. The gospel does not divide humanity the way that you and I might. It doesn't divide humanity into good people and into bad people. It divides humanity into people who are running away from God by breaking all His rules and who are running away from God by keeping all His rules with the hopes that somehow God will owe them and let them into heaven because, you know, they're really good folks. People matter to God and they need to matter to us. And here's the irony, even bad people, and this is what makes it ironic, that's all of us. It's every one of us. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make to the good, moral, religiously observant folks. It's by grace that you have been saved. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, not of your efforts, lest anyone boast in anything or anyone other than Jesus. That's the gospel. And that's what Jesus is drilling down. People matter to God and they need to matter to us. Every different kind of people, every one of them, but the bad ones too. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you take bad people in And that by coming to faith in Christ, because we sure can't undo our past, you cover us in the robe of the righteousness that is won for us by His perfect life. We thank you that you receive us as children, not as slaves. And I pray, God, that we might be reminded that we ought to quit living like slaves and servants and start behaving like sons and daughters of the King. We thank You that You became poor, that we might become rich. And I ask, Lord, that we might worship as those whose wealth is in heaven and is eternal and inexhaustible. And Lord, I ask that You would give us a heart for people, all people, a humble heart knowing that it's the same grace that saves us. We pray these things, Lord, for your glory and for the building of your great kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.